Okay, thank you very much for talking to me today. Pleasure. Um, the first thing I'd like to ask is, um, is psychoanalysis rooted in Western thought? Can it deal with culture? Oh my God. Um, <laughs> can it deal with culture? Um, c can you say what you mean by culture? Is, is it ethnocentric? Is, mm. it, um, is it equally relevant in different cultures? Right, so, so is it applicable to, to a variety of cultures? Yeah. Um, yeah, I think that, that certainly traditionally it started from, um, uh, it was, it was by definition had to be ethnocentric in as much as that it was started largely by um, white, largely Jewish, a lot of them ended up becoming refugees, you know, a particular class of people who, you know, from, you know, Vienna or Austria, well, Vienna is in Austria, uh, you know, largely from Europe, Central Europe. Um, and um, and followed a trajectory which sort of immigrated here into America. But yes, it was an it was a it was a narrow cultural band, and in some ways still suffers from being mostly accessible to a fairly middle class or privileged group. Um, I think that is changing in a lot of ways. I mean, certainly, um, you know, the NHS is making sometimes making it more more available. Um, I suppose I should also ask you to clarify, when you say psychoanalysis, are you using that as an umbrella term for all psychotherapy? I mean, as, as no. barring cognitive behavioural, but I mean, are you using it as for all psychodynamic therapy? All psychodynamic therapy. Right, okay, because yes. that makes it a little easier. Um, but yes, no, I think that that's one of the problems with, um, with, with, with psychotherapy, and that's what actually, when I did my MA, that's what I wrote my dissertation in, which was sort of using these two extremes, for instance, was sort of the, the, the very kind of um, cottage industry world of psycho psychotherapy or psychoanalysis and sort of political extremes, e.g. Uh, paramilitary groups in Northern Ireland. And I was trying to sort of forge a common language between these two very um, you know, antithetical sort of worlds. You know, can, does psychoanalysis or psychotherapy have a place in these worlds that are extremely political or even just extreme? And what did you, what did, what do you think um, about the role of psychodynamic therapy in culturally divided societies or politically divided societies, mm. what specific role do you think it can play there? Well, I think it definitely could play a role, but I think that actually th which this does relate to the way I actually do work, which is more phenomenological um, than psychoanalytic. And the idea of phenomenology is that you look at the entire phenomena. So you don't just say, well, this person is disturbed because of, you know, because of some unconscious process that hasn't been resolved or because of something that happened to them when they were very young. You might also say, well, this person is disturbed because they grew up in a war zone or in abject poverty or because, um, you know, they, they were gay and lived in a homophobic community in North Wales or whatever it happens to be. You look at the entire phenomena. And I think unless you're able to do that... Um, psychoanalysis has no place anywhere if it's a totally uh, intrapsychic experience. Um, having said that, to be fair, these days I, I, I would say that, that, that many psychoanalysts do try to do that as well. But yes, in fact, there's a very good book called Intercultural Therapy, which is from um, Nafsiat, um, which, which probably is one of the best books written on, on the topic about, about some all and gives you some, you know, really you know, horrific examples of people from very different cultures being treated psychoanalytically. Um, for instance, there's a, 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 a you know, young black man is on the way to therapy early in the very early in the morning, 
and he, he's, a, he's stopped by police who think he's up to something dodgy because it's so early and he's they think he looks shifty and they, they, they say, where are you going? And he says, I'm going to see my analyst. They don't believe him. They personally escort him to the analyst's office. The analyst says, yes, he is here to see me. He goes into the analyst's office, you know, police leave. And the analyst, you know, the boy sits there, you know, seething with rage. And the analyst says, you know, I wonder if you're, you know, wonder if you're feeling angry at me or wonder why you're feeling so angry as if, you know, as if the bloody police hadn't, you know, as if the whole thing hadn't even happened. Now, that's a kind of extreme example, but not necessarily an implausible one of just, you know, of, of and I think psychotherapy is at times really guilt, really kind of guilty of that, of not addressing, um, you know, the, 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 the phenomenon, not addressing the political, economic, sexual, whatever it happens to be, phenomena of, of what's going on out there, certainly, but not always. And do you think that psychotherapy can play a role in preventing divisions within society mm. forming? I do, but I think it has to be has to be phenomenological. It has mm. to, and I also think that you probably need, um, and I also think that by in that vein, psychoanalysts really need to know um, the, the, the the culture that they're actually analyzing you know or, or entering into um i mean i think that they have to you know you can't just you, you can't just read a few textbooks and train and, and and live in this very sheltered community and then sort of bring that to some other community i think you really need to know what what you know either know a bit about that community or have a, a, a serious spirit of inquiry which is even more um say even word, uh, which is even more more important to be genuinely curious so if you come to see me in your latvian and you're you know and, I, and you've just come here and i don't really know much about latvia I may not necessarily need to know, it helps to know something about it, but it also helps for me to be open to whatever you bring about your Latvianness and where you're from. And then I take a genuine interest in that. So that we're not, you're not just coming in and I'm thinking, oh, this person is, you know, alienated because her mother ignored her. Well, you may also be feeling alienated because you're, you know, new to the country or don't speak the language or a refugee or whatever it happens to be. So I certainly think psychoanalysis or psychotherapy can have a, a, a great role in, in uh, war zones and truth and reconciliation committees in just simply dis disaffected communities but I think that it has to be you know we have to be very careful um, and, and I'm assuming you mean not just in terms of one-on-one -on -one therapy are you also talking about panels seminars things like that well yeah and that and, and there are some very good groups that attempt to kind of um, forge alliances between sort of you know politics and the personal and the political as it were the psycho psychotherapeutic and the political um, and I was wondering whether you think that um, psychoanalysis and psychotherapy, whether you think that it um, there's greater need or want for it in societies which are secular, and whether maybe it's less relevant in a religious society. That's a really interesting question. I mean, there's probably two answers to that. Um, and I'm thinking about work I've done with people who used to be part of, um, of, of very religious, um, you know, communities, or even in some cases, sex and cults, um, you know, very fundamentalist type communities. And there often is huge tension between fundamentalist kind of religions and, and psychotherapy, partly because you're not meant in some of these communities to, um, to be too introspective, to question too much. You're meant to accept, you know, the will of God or, or, or and in fact, there is, you know, um, even some forms of fundamentalism which say that if you leave your mind too empty for you know that, that if, you, if you do that if you if you're um you're sort of leaving your mind open for you know satan to enter and all of that i mean these are obviously very extreme i'd say in um otherwise i don't see why there isn't um there can't be some um 
marriage or or, or sort of unification of say certain, of, of of any kind of religious culture in psychotherapy. I think so long as the therapist is willing to um, respect and and understand, you know, um, the, what's been brought to them. I mean, I don't see why. I mean, if you believe in God and I don't, I mean, I'm a fairly secular person, but if I have a client who believes in God, and, and actually, you know, some of my clients do believe in God, I don't. it's not for me to, to, to try to impose my secularity upon you. I think it, it's more for me to try to understand what God means to you and what kind of God exists in your life. You know, is it a benevolent God? Is it an angry God? I mean, which is actually interesting, whether, you, whether you're you know, religious or not, is that often, you know, we, we, we can project things onto gods the same way as we project onto therapists. So you might have an angry God that might also be some incarnation of your angry father. You know, and that's interesting to look at. And I think that we can look at something like that without me debunking your religion. Um, so it's, I think it's, I mean, I'm quite a challenging therapist, but I like to think that while I might challenge what you mean by, by God or Jesus or whatever, that I'm not just, I'm not undermining the belief or seeking to kind of disabuse you of it. I, mean, I think Freud himself had a, had a fairly, um, dismal view of, of religion. I, mean, I think he felt that it was a form of, of, um, of, of psychosis. But I think he said that about love as well at one point or something. I don't know. I can't remember. (laughs) (laughs) Or being in love is a sort of slightly quasi-psychotic state. Might be slightly true, I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) And um, I was wondering if you could think of any examples where you think the two have been able to exist in parallel well Kierkegaard well actually Kierkegaard wasn't a psychoanalyst he was a philosopher but but he's a philosopher affected very much what I do um or the way I work um well certainly there's also people like Paul Tillich who's a Christian minister I believe who's also I believe he is a psychotherapist and he's and certainly works with lots of I mean he's worked a lot with Carl Rogers and things like that or he's done a lot of dialogues and working here dialogues with him and, and, and the whole thing about the chaplains, you know, there are lots of, you know, rabbis and, and priests and ministers who actually train as psychotherapists. Um, um, so I don't see... Well, most religious communities do have something like a therapist, you know. I mean, I, I was, when I was at, when I was doing my training, um, I remember one man, he's called Rabbi Dove, who was a, an Orthodox Jew and, and South African guy, what a nice, not a nice man. You know, and he his congregation was often potential for Temple Fortune, or, or I think I went to one or two services with him because he just because he invited me really. Um, and you know, he was trained. He he did his MA in psychotherapy. Um, so there's certainly a lot of, and you know, there were there were you know men and more men than women as I recall, but there were men of the cloth on my course um, uh, in all persuasions. I don't see why psychotherapy and religion necessarily must be mutually exclusive. Having said that, I think that you can, you can certainly get to some sticky areas. I mean, let's say you're, you know, you're a Catholic and and a very, very devout Catholic, you know, of the kind of, you know, don't believe in birth control, don't believe in abortion. And, you know, you're a young Catholic woman who, you know, gets pregnant, has an unwanted pregnancy, um, and you're in therapy, you know, yes, there will be all kinds of, you know, huge conflicts, um, between say the, 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 the part of you that is, you know, if you like, has internalized all of that and just thinks that you are absolutely going to hell if you do these things, um, or uh, versus the the part of you that thinks that well, you know, that 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 may in therapy may come to think of yourself as a as an individual with uh, agency and choice, um, and that this isn't necessarily um, a sin. You know, I mean, yes, there must be huge conflicts, but I don't see these as just religious conflicts. These things, this happens in therapy all the time. People come in with their own internalized beliefs whether that's religious or, 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 I mean, you could, you know, Marxists, 
uh, you know, have a problem with therapy a lot of the time because they think that therapy is a kind of often a kind of uh, not all Marxist, but often. Um, in fact, I've been challenged more by Marxists than I probably have by you know, religious people who they say, well, you know, you're all you're doing is, is making this world about, you know, the personal and, and it's self-indulgent and it's all about feelings. And actually when there's, you know, there's wars to be, you know, fought and fascists to be disputed and, you know, and we're living in a kind of dismal socioeconomic climate. And here you are talking about what your mother said to you when you were 11, you know, and, and so I've actually had, had charges, you know, which can be true sometimes, you know, therapy can be self-indulgent if it's not taking the whole into account. But I think that the point I'm making, very long-winded way, is that conflicts um, arise in therapy anyway between what one has been raised with and what might come up in therapy. That's one of the biggest challenges. And I was wondering um, what your experiences of working with different communities have been. Um, Do you work predominantly with people from one community or...? Well, I now work privately, so I, although I have had people from everywhere privately, um, from all over the world, really. Um, I used to work in a, I didn't. I used to work in prison. In fact, my first placement was at Wormwood Scrubs, um, and uh, funnily enough, that was more hom- homogenous. Um, pretty much everyone I saw at Scrubs, they were lifers, and they were all white, which I thought was interesting, and they were um, from rather similar backgrounds. They were from sort of very, you know, extremely impoverished. And we, as you might imagine, uh, very poor backgrounds, often for some reason in the sort of Bermondsey area, which is interesting because Scrubs is nowhere near Bermondsey, is it? Um, but, uh, um, and then I did the, the, didn't do psychotherapy, but I did sort of political re- research in, in Northern Ireland. So I've certainly had a lot of exposure to people um, from, from those communities. Um, and as a therapist working privately, I mean, I've worked with people from, from everywhere. I mean, I... Um, you know, I've worked with people from Eastern Europe, people in Israel, you know, English, American, Ethiopian, um, Asian. Not so many. Yeah, no, some Asian clients, yeah. Do you see similarities between the people um, that you've worked with from different cultures? What kind of... Universal. 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 <laughs> well, this is fascinating. I mean, I think that, that yeah, yeah, certainly. I mean, I think that, that if you look at this sort of existentially... You know, which is that there are only if, if if you if you are an existential psychotherapist, and I'm not strictly an existential psychotherapist, but the the two precepts, which is basically, you're born and you die, and that's all we know, right? That, that everything else is is is, is, is amorphous and uncertain, and it's what we make of it, and and often arbitrary. Um, so in that sense, that that's the thing that you know we're all incredibly individual within that, but the fact that we all share those two things make us in some kind of fundamental way the same, although everything else can also be very different. So, I mean, certainly, I think that um, uh, we, you know, we all fear death. You know, we all live, whether we know we do or not, or whether we think we do or not, I think we're all aware that life is finite from the time we're very, very young. Um, we may process that differently or have slightly different relationships to it, but I think we all, you know, know that we have pretty short time to be here, and that creates, you know, similar feelings of fear, urgency, Motivation, you know, um, I mean, there's an in- Goldsmiths. I used to be a, a student counselor at Goldsmiths, and um, apparently, on their art course, they used to ask people, you know, would you still make your art if you knew if you if you were going to live forever? Which I thought was a very interesting question. I don't know if we do anything if we thought we were going to live forever. You know, in a sense, it also gets us out of bed in the morning. But we all, I mean, I think our relationship to death is similar. Um, I mean, I should I should qualify that the way we deal with death or the sort of rituals that we bring to death. Um, maybe our attitudes may be different, but I think that we all are aware of it, and I think most of us, on some level, do fear it, no matter what we say. Um, 
some more than others in different ways. Um, I think that we all want to be loved, but I also think that many of us, if not all of us, fear being loved. So the thing that we want the most is also the thing that we're the most frightened of. Um, and I find that that's a pretty universal thing. And of course, some people have a, a much you know, greater capacity to be loved and to give love than others, no doubt about it. Um, but I think that ambivalence is it's on a spectrum, but I think that it's universal anyway, which is that the thing that people most want or say they want, which is intimacy, closeness, love, tenderness, understanding, compassion. And, and indeed, I think that most of us, if not all of us, want that. We also um, are very threatened by that or think we can't have it or think we don't deserve it or feel smothered by it. So there's usually some conflict around intimacy and love. I think I probably could think of very few clients that, that or very few people, you know, that, that, that don't suffer a little bit from that kind of ambivalence. Um, we all are profoundly affected by our parents or where we were, you know, um, and, and, you know, we never really lose that. I mean, I think we, we can, we can, you know, that can change and we could, you know, we could challenge it a lot more and, and the, the, the volume could go down. Um, but I think that that's, you know, we, we, we still internalize our parents. Um, so yeah, I think there are many universals, certainly, that, that, that aren't, but, but, but what's different culturally is sort of the way we process those things um, or how we behave in relation to those feelings. Like the feelings are probably roughly the same. What we do with them is quite different. Could you kind of go into a few of the differences? The, the how we do process those um, God, that's so vast. But I almost, <laughs> yeah. I almost think of it... It's, a, it's an interesting question. I mean, I think I'd have to really think about it because, I mean, I'm almost wondering... Think about the clients I've had. Um, you know, for instance, clients from very Mediterranean backgrounds who maybe in some ways appear to often be um, more effusive and ebullient, and, 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 I mean, even if they're English, but if they're you know, from these backgrounds... And, and maybe more forthcoming in a certain way than people from, say, you know, the home counties. But actually, I'm not convinced that they're necessarily less repressed. <laughs> so in some ways, I end up feeling that they're sort of more similar than we realise. I mean, there's certain... You know, it's an interesting thing about clients from Mediterranean backgrounds. There's often a funny... And, and, or sort of Latin American kind of backgrounds, which is often there's an appearance of ebullience, but there's a lot of, you know, other kinds of fear and repression about talking about oneself, which is to do with maybe a culture that's a little bit more collectivist, less individual, perhaps is to do with how religion is internalised, even if it isn't actively practised. Um, so I often come up ultimately with more similarities than differences, although I would hate to sort of, you know, in some bland, globalising way, say we're all the same. We're really not. Um, our behaviours are really different. Our personalities are really different. Um, I've certainly found, you know, for instance, I mean, it's a terrible cliche, but, you know, Israeli clients are definitely more aggressive than, you know, Swedish clients. I mean, they just are, you know. But, you know, on, on some emotional level, are they similar? Well, yes and no. Yes and no. Um, it's, it's, it's a tough one. I often find, I mean, in a funny way, I almost think you're better qualified to look at the differences within one country, within one community so so for instance um maybe that's because you know i know this particular country much better than pretty much anywhere else but also um you know to look you know someone from the north of england you know working class former minor community in the north of england is going to really be as different from someone in knightsbridge as either those people will probably be from you know someone from helsinki you know it, it's it's so varied even within one culture there's an interesting uh book called Mental Space, which talks very well about this, about you know, every individual as a culture, really, and, and you need to really treat every individual like a culture, you know, like, like his or her own culture. 
think he says something. He, he extends the metaphor. He says something like, uh, like a medicine cabinet in the in, in the bathroom. You know, is compri- you know comprised of all these different things in the cabinet, and you really have to kind of open it up and look at all the different items. Which sounds terribly clinical, but he says it better than I do. Mm-hmm. Um, and do you have a vision of what you um, would like to see for the role of psychotherapy um, working with institutions like Counterpoint or the British Council? Hmm. Well, I'm, I'm kind of curious. I mean, I'm also curious to know in concrete terms what, what Counterpoint's going to be doing. And I think that they, it, we're sort of formulating it, aren't we? I mean, um, I mean, maybe you could answer something, which is that what do you... What do you imagine? Maybe it'd be easier for me to answer that when I, when, if I asked you, what do you imagine counterpoint doing and it's it's sort of what what role do you imagine it performing well i think um i think what they're trying to do at the moment is to um get a deeper understanding of um the firstly the things which which make up culture um so if we can understand um if we can understand better concepts like um the individual and how individuals interact with each other um, and um, if we can understand better ways of comparing cultures and why um, cultures can become radical mm. um, then we can understand we can kind of create models um, for cultures to interact with each other and we yeah. can we can try and improve cultural relations by getting a deeper understanding of what culture is. I'm, I think I'm very interested in, in um, the sort of psychology of racism. Mm-hmm. And, and I think that there's another great book, called, which isn't a psychotherapy book, it's called Geology, it's over there, Geology of Exclusion, Geologies of Exclusion, which is um, very much about how we do, it's actually about things like towns and cities and how we often divide up, or you know, city planners divide up towns and cities unconsciously or at some point consciously in order to divide and segregate and, and, and create kind of geographical apartheid but we sort of do this uh, psychologically as well so I'm quite interested in, in in different kinds of cultural hatred whether that is homophobia or um or, or, or sexist or racist um and the thing about racism that's so interesting really is that it's almost always a projection of oneself and I think that the, 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 you know, that the challenge, and I remember the, the one meeting we've, counterpoint meeting we've had so far as this came up a bit, is that, of course, you know, you can't just go into a community and say, it's because you hate yourself, and that's why you hate, you know, you know to someone, let's say, you know, unemployed person in Peterborough is blaming the polls for working. You know, you, can, you can't just sort of say, well, it's because you have so much self-loathing, and you feel so worthless that you're opposing all of that and scapegoating this immigrant, you know, that that would be incredibly patronising. But there may be some truth in it. So you have to, you know, in a way, I guess this trick is to really, really is to really try to sort of um, explore both the internal world and the external world. So that, for instance, you know, the more we hate ourselves, the more we basically hate others. I mean, you know, and, and, and that then, when you ask about gender, there is a kind of kind of generalisation that I could make, and I want to be careful, particularly in light of this paedophile thing that's just been exposed, which is, which is interesting, um, is that generally speaking, I think men tend to impose... Uh, self-hatred externally and women tend to 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 enact it upon themselves now that is a generalization not always true but i think that is probably one of the reasons why certain kinds of tribal um activity vigilante groups wars things like that tend to be fought more by men um and i'm sort of digressing by saying that except that sometimes it makes it harder for men to want to be in therapy 
because they see therapy or being analyzed or being talking to a therapist as being a disavowal of what's happening in the community. Saying, well, I have a right to hate this, this person, you know, yeah, you know, if or whatever there happens to be, you know, the Paki or the pole or whatever, because they're taking my job because the government's giving, privileging them over me. And by you analyzing me, all you're doing is denying the, the reality of what's happening here. You have to, now in some way you have to be able to respect that. That doesn't mean you agree with what they're saying, but you have to be able to say, well, actually, the circumstances are, they have been screwed by the government. They have been left out in the cold. It's understandable that they want to scapegoat. But at the same time, a lot of the scapegoating comes from a place of self-hatred. And that's, I don't know if I'm making sense here, but that's where it gets really tricky to actually look at, and I really found this in Northern Ireland when I was doing that research there, that you have people who, you know, have all kinds of, um, you know, feelings of, of, of self-loathing, low self-worth, you know, largely, econo- largely to do with economics, do with living in communities which are extremely sectarian, where, where you're, you know, shrouded in fear, where there's a siege mentality. Yes, that affects the individual, of course it does. The more you hate yourself, the more you want to hate the dirty tag or, or whatever it happens to be. Having said that, you know, you, you, you've got to be able to look at the, at the edit in its entirety. And that's, of course, the big the challenge. And I don't really know, short of basically just talking about all of it, how you do that. I think you just have to be willing to talk about all of that. I think you can't storm in from a, you know, in a way, I think to be clever about it, you can't just sort of storm in from, you, from a sort of, uh, you almost have to start in a way with the political, I think. Or with at least an appreciation of the landscape before you go in and say, well, you know, you know, your father was an alcoholic and you grew up in a six to a room and you had no money and therefore you hate yourself and then hate this, you know, Ethiopian family. You know, you can't, you, I think in a way you have to be able to respect um, the language and belief of the person you're talking to before you can begin to challenge it. Um, um, do you think, um, given your idea of um, what the individual is, what the self is, mm. do you think there is a case for saying that um, a kind of liberal idea of human rights should be upheld internationally, or do you think that you can't really judge from... Well, that's such a hard question, isn't it? I mean, that's fascinating. <laughs> and that is, I mean, that's a minefield, and we could do, you know, days on that alone. Um, when I see that girl on YouTube being stoned to death, in um where was it Kazakhstan you know that we know what I'm talking about uh, you know then I think you know um at that 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 point I sort of think um to hell with cultural relativism you know in that moment you know I don't want to um I mean I, you know I, in, in the moment I have a visceral reaction you know, like, like this is, this is, you know, um, I can't accept this and we shouldn't accept this or little girls being sent off to, you know, is it the Congo to be circumcised or something? I mean, I can't, no, you know, we don't, but that doesn't mean we don't also seek to understand because, you know, and as much as I want in that moment to say, I don't, I don't even want to really go that I just want this not to happen. No, we do still need to understand, but that doesn't mean we let it happen. And that's a really tricky balance. I mean, that's a terribly tricky balance. I mean, look what's happening in Iran, you know, Afghanistan and Iraq, both wars, as far as I can tell, are, you know, the most futile, I mean, all right, you can make a kind of an argument for Afghanistan, I'm not really sure you can anymore, you know, and, and, and basically, um, you know, all this seems to be is, is sort of, you know, well, in some ways cynical and, and, um, and mercenary as far as Iraq is concerned anyway, but also, 
all right, a little more morally murky as far as Afghanistan is concerned, but basically this feels interfering, this feels elitist, this feels like the West, you know, claiming dominion over, you know, this game's also, but at the same time, if we hadn't interfered in Nazi Germany or even during the Balkan War, the Balkans, um, you know, I, I mean, I wouldn't have endorsed that either. So it's such a tricky balance, it's such an incredibly tricky balance. I think that there are certain absolutes, you know, that there are th- certain things that we just cannot accept. You know, I mean, the, the way and the way that women and the way that women are treated among certain kinds of um, particularly, you know, fundamentalist, you know, Islamic cultures are truly horrific, you know. Um, but then I don't want to take a, you know, sort of Martin Amis kind of line who basically just condemns, you know, con- well, I don't know. Is he con- I mean, he's sort of unpopular at the moment? As far as I can tell, sort of slightly throws the baby out with the bathwater to just condemn, you know, any kind of Islamic extremism or even Islam. And I mean, that's ridiculous if that indeed is what he's doing. Um, but it's it's a really tricky balance, and really interesting, Patrice. Okay, well, thank you very much. Thank you.